Amen. Thank you, Brian. I hope you guys know how blessed you are to have Brian, right? I mean, what a good word and a timely word. And so I, I hope that you thank God for Brian, because uh, you should. I've been at other places without someone like Brian, and he is a real blessing. Uh, if you're not yet thankful for him in about 30 minutes, you might be a little more thankful for him. <laughs> but we'll, uh, we'll leave that up to you to decide. This morning, we're going to be going uh, into Exodus. So we're going through the book of Exodus as a body. So if you want to grab a Bible, uh, maybe you brought one, maybe you didn't. Uh, there should be one around you in the pew in front of you. If you actually don't even own a Bible, please take that one and read it. You can take it home. It's our gift to you. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus 15, which is on page 57 of that Bible in front of you. But we're in the middle of this series called Building the People of God, right? The book of Exodus is, is a story of how God took an ethnic group, the Hebrew people, at the bottom of Egyptian society, and He created a nation out of them. They weren't a nation, and He built it with His own hand. And as we've, we've been journeying through the book of Exodus, we've tried to keep two things in mind. So the, the first is that the, the Exodus story is Israel's story, but it's also our story, right? This story is our story. And number two, that as God is doing this with, with the Israelites, He is making all things new. He's not making all new things. It's actually probably easier for God to make new things than to, to make new people out of Israel. But that is the journey that we are on. So... Uh, as God's been weaving this story, I'm just going to recap the book of Exodus to get us to where we are, because we're kind of at like the climax right now. It's a really exciting part uh, of the book of Exodus. So the Hebrew people were enslaved, they were mistreated, they were oppressed by the Egyptians, and yet they were seen and heard by the God who called them his people. So God sends a deliverer. He calls Moses, he calls Aaron, and he says, go and pronounce judgment on Egypt, judgment to Pharaoh, and judgment on the idols of Egypt. And so they pronounce a series of plagues, culminating in the Passover, the death plague, after which time Pharaoh expels Israel out of Egypt. The people say, get out. We want nothing more to do with you. And, and this is a defining piece of Israel's story in the Passover. So Israel is freed. And like overnight, they go from being slaves and, and a, you know, and a people in bondage to a people who are now free. And God knows they're not quite ready for it, right? He doesn't just let them into the promised land. He actually says, I'm going to take you through the wilderness because I want to form you. I need to form you into my people. And that takes time. So he leads them right to the sea, right? Kind of wandering through the wilderness into this valley with the sea in front of them and mountains on either side, and Israel turns around and sees the host of Egypt upon them. Pharaoh changed his mind, as he likes to do. He gathered every chariot he could and his whole army, and he said, we're going after them. That was our whole workforce. What was I thinking? And so Israel turns and sees and has you know, a very predictable response of, well, now what do we do? There's nowhere to go. It is a literal dead end. And God says to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. So Israel literally walks away from their enemies. And as they are coming up out of the sea, they turn, they see Pharaoh in hot pursuit. And God says to Moses to stretch out his hand again, to bring the waters back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And in seconds, like that, the most powerful army that you could conceive of the day, right? If you had chariots, you won the battle. That's it. Chariots beats no chariots, right? And yet, in seconds, that army's wiped out. It's gone. 
no more. They're at the bottom of the ocean. And Israel is now on the other side of the sea looking back over what just happened and probably this sense of just great fear and dread about who is this God that we serve, right? And so that brings us to the end of Exodus 14 where it says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You think, right? That's not a surprise. Of course they feared God. They just witnessed one of the, like literally the most incredible things that could have ever happened. And so that brings us to the end of 14 and right to 15, where we have the first corporate worship song. Israel has no other response than to sing praises to God. So I'm going to ask uh, Ashley and Bill, they're going to come read uh, this song of Moses in Exodus 15. And actually, they're going to read uh, Revelation 15, a portion of it, which is also recorded as the song of Moses. It's actually the last recorded corporate worship song. Moses uh, must have been quite a songwriter if he gets both credit for the first and last, if you ask me. But Bill and Ashley, would you come and uh, read these passages for us? Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider are thrown into the sea. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider are thrown into the sea. The Lord, my God, my strength and song, he has become my victory. The Lord, my God, my strength and song, he has become my victory. The Lord is God and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord? among the gods who is like you majestic in holiness awesome in glorious deeds doing wonders you stretched out your right hand the earth swallowed them 
you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are as still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider are thrown into the sea. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider are thrown into the sea. Join me. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider are thrown into the sea. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider are thrown into the sea. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Thank you, guys. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, would you use these texts to shape us into your Son? Spirit, would you come now and illuminate the Word of God to our hearts? And would you redeem us by your power and in your holy name? Amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys for doing that. Uh, a little different and a little creativity there. Uh, as we look at this passage, um, we'll, we'll start with the Exodus 15 one. I know a, a deep question you probably have is why did they allow tambourines? 
Um, that question deserves an answer. I'm not sure we're going to get to it today. I, I attended a church in college, and somebody would always bring a tambourine, like a, a congregant, and they had no rhythm. And so I have a, a particular bias against tambourines. But thanks, thank you, Ashley, for having rhythm. That helps a lot. <clears throat> But uh, as we look at Exodus 15 here, we, we have this like spontaneous eruption of praise, right? Like the, the song just is like bursting out of the Israelites. There's no, there's no tricks. You know, we, nowadays we rely on lighting and special effects and drum sets and fog machines and things like that. There's none of that. It's just outright jubilation, right? At, at what God had just done for the Israelites, and it's creative. It's, it's exciting. There's, there's references to things like God's breath in verse 8. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Or verse 10, you blew with your wind and the seas covered them. This imagery is, is actually quite powerful. In the, the, you know, the Hebrew mind, breath, breathing is like the, the picture of effortlessness. It's something you do without thinking about it, Right? the blast of your nostrils. You know, when you're scrolling on your phone and you find something hilarious, you do that extra little exhale from your nose, like, hmm. And then you describe that as LOL to your friends, right? That, that's enough for God. <clears throat> that's enough for him to pile up millions of gallons of water, right? That effortless power. And, and the sea in the Hebrew mind is literal hell. It is where Satan and the, the enemy lives. So for God, the most effortless thing he can do can control and tame his fiercest enemies. That's the kind of song that Israel is singing here. And, and as I considered, you know, this song and the attitude behind it for the Israelites to sing, and then I looked at my own heart and I said, you know, when I, when I worship God, is this, is this my experience? Is this my attitude? And I had to sort of wrestle with the fact that that's not always the case. And maybe that's not always the case for you. And as I, as I read and reread this passage, I tried to wrestle with why, and there's a little phrase in verse 2. You know, the song that they sang uh, had a different verbiage for it, but the ESV says it like this uh, in the beginning of uh, Exodus 15. Moses and the people start the song. They say, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He has become my salvation. As I read and reread this passage, this phrase, for some reason, the Spirit called out to me as saying, this you need to focus on. And it took me some time to sort of unpack it. But, but there's an experiential component to this phrase, right? It, it's not just a theoretical. It's not like a, I acknowledge that God is God. It is a, I have lived through this and he has become my salvation. It's like the difference between what you might call head knowledge and heart knowledge. It's not a theoretical, out there, abstract idea. It's a concrete sort of reality for your heart. I have maybe believed in God, but now I see with my eyes. I've experienced it. I have walked it with my own two feet through the Red Sea. It's not, not really all that unlike the idea of, of being fascinated with airplanes. And so you go to the library and you pull out every book there is on airplanes, and you read about lift, you read about a wing shape and how air flows this way and this way, and if it goes faster this way than this way, then you get lift underneath. And you can know all, it is, all there is to know about airplanes, and you can say, I believe airplanes fly, right? But that's not the same thing as getting on an airplane and saying, I believe airplanes fly, right? It's a different kind of faith. 
It's a different kind of knowledge. And I, I would like to challenge you that that kind of knowledge is far more valuable when it comes to God. So we should ask, how do you get there? How do you get this kind of experiential life knowledge of God? And, the, you know, at least one answer from the text is obedience, right? The Israelites had to obey God to get from where they were in Egypt to where they were through the Red Sea. If at any point that, you know, someone had said along the way, I'm not much into camping. You know, I prefer to be back in Egypt. There's a roof over my head. There's food. I'm not getting chased by chariots. So I I'm not with the program. And they left. They wouldn't have experienced this. They would not know that God had become their salvation. And so it's that, it's that important aspect of on-the-ground obedience. I just loved hearing Catherine's story today, right? It was, it was obedience in a, a step-by-step fashion. God didn't lay it all out ahead of time. He asked her to obey in the moment-by-moment parts of that story. And that is how it works every time for us. That's how you get to know God. It takes time. It takes years of experience and that's how he'll do it. For us, it, it happened in a very powerful way back in, you know, 2007, 8, 9. So we were married in 2007. We lived in Maryland. We were both working, you know, enjoying that double income, no, no kid life. That seems so far away now. Um, <clears throat> and Keely and I had both had fairly significant experiences as, like, high school, college students about, like, life overseas. We'd done some short-term trips here and there. And we had both begun to wonder, is this something that God is calling us to as a, a couple? So in the summer of 2008, there was a trip being put on by one of my mentors to go take care of the kids of a missions agency called Christian Associates. They were a bunch of church planners in Europe. So we led a team of high schoolers to go take care of the kids while their parents could have their annual conference, get refreshed, and that kind of thing. But secretly, we wanted to get to know some of these missionaries to see if like, hey, is this something God's calling us to? Is this something that he might have for us in the future? And, you know, we made some, some good contacts, relationships, and it really felt like maybe this is something that God wanted. But we didn't feel like we should go if we had, like, student loans to pay off and things like that. So we said, well, maybe in a couple years uh, this will be the case. So that was summer. In November, we wrote the last check to our student loans. I guess when you have no kids and you're married to someone as frugal as Keely. Um, <laughs> Honest truth. I mean, she, she's the best. And um, <clears throat> the loans were gone in November. I'm not kidding. We wrote the last check on a Monday. On Tuesday, we get an email from somebody we met over the summer from Portugal saying, hey, do you want to come check out our team and see if you guys might be a good fit to join our team? It's like, well, okay. Um, little, so, so we're trying to process this, and uh, we're, we set up this trip for February. Well, we had several mentors who were like, don't do that. Why would you go to Portugal? Like, there are places that don't have the gospel. Portugal's in Western Europe. They, like, they know, they've, they've, they've had it, they've rejected it, God's done with them. You need to go to the 1040 window. And so we're wrestling with this, trying to understand, like, well, now what do we do, right? We, we feel like God is asking us to obey. We feel like he's kind of laid out this plan. So we went. And it was uh, February. February in Maryland is not very nice, but February in Portugal is very nice, it turns out. <clears throat> Beautiful, sunny, and these, uh, these church planters were trying to plant churches among surfers. And I didn't surf, but for Jesus, I would consider it. Um, so, so, you know, we're there, and we really want to, like, feel like this is us, right? We like the idea of being there, but something was just not settled in our soul. I mean, we spent a week there, and we couldn't place it. 
But on Thursday, we're trying to unpack this with one of the younger couples on the team, Hillary and Zach. And we're like, guys, we, we love you guys. We love this team. We love Portugal. We really like the beach. And it's just not, not something isn't connecting with our, you know, what we feel like God is calling us to. And they said, yeah, we understand that. We actually feel the same way. We're going to move this summer to Morocco. We just heard about this school. There's an amazing thing going on. Do you guys want to hear about it? We're like, well, yeah, sure. So for the next hour, they told us about Morocco, and we're getting more and more excited about this idea of Morocco. And Hillary says at one point, well, what if God brought you to Portugal so you'd hear about Morocco? Is that like awkward silence? You know, the goosebumps. And six months later, we're on a plane to Morocco. Right? God asks for obedience in the next step. He doesn't ask for the whole plan. And that's how you get to know him. You know, we got, we got intimately acquainted with the idea that God is going to order your steps. Right? And we got to know God in a new way because we, we got to experience his leadership in that way. So I, I just want to stop and say, what is God asking you to obey right now? Maybe you want something that's too far off. Maybe you need to be faithful in the now and watch God answer that now so that you will be prepared for the next thing. You'll get to know him in a very experiential way. So that's the first part of what I felt like God was telling me in this, you know, God has become our salvation. But the second part uh, has to do with the idea that for, for Moses to say, you know, he is my strength and my song, he's become my salvation, there's almost an element that that he wasn't their salvation before. I mean, that, that sounds crazy to say because like, God had been leading them through the desert up to this point. But there's a, there's a reality to this fact that, that maybe they were looking to something else for their salvation prior to this. And I think that that is something that we should step back and look at for ourselves. What do we look to for salvation? And I don't mean like, you know, what's your head answer when, when somebody says, what's saving you? Because I think most of us could probably say, Jesus is the only one who can save. That's, that's true, and that's a, like a justification from sin type of arrangement. But I mean in the day-to-day life, what are you looking to to save you? The biblical idea of salvation is much more ongoing. It's much more in your day-to-day life. What are you looking to for significance, for meaning, for purpose, for value? Because I think most of us, if we're honest, we, we don't always look to God for that. And God has not become that kind of salvation for us. We look to other things. And when that's the case, when we look to other things instead of God, we need to call those what they are, because the Bible has a pretty specific term for them. They're idols. They're idols. They're counterfeit gods. Right? We don't think of them that way. We think of idols as these little figurines, or from ancient history, or Buddhism, or Hinduism. But when we look to something else for salvation in our practical lives, that's, that's idolatry. That's what it is. That's what we're really worshiping. John Calvin called the human heart an idol factory, right? These are the things that we worship in our day-to-day lives. There's a guy named uh, Daniel Block. He's a Wheaton professor uh, of the Old Testament, and he wrote a thick book on worship called For the Glory of God. If you're uh, struggling with insomnia, it's great, great medicine for that. But he opens the whole thing, hundreds of pages about worship, with this little sentence, to be human is to worship, right? We are worshiping something. You are worshiping something. Do you know what it is? So the problem with idolatry is that we like to think of them as like, like the idols in our lives are the bad things, right? That's, that's like, oh, okay, sure. Like, you know, gambling or drugs or sex or the Steelers or the Browns or something, you know, like it's all the bad stuff. 
right? Those are the idols. But, but in reality, sometimes it's the good things that we turn into ultimate things. If you take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing, that's an idol in your life. When you look to that for meaning and significance, that has now become a god. You have deified it and placed it at the center of your life. Tim Keller wrote a great book on this topic. If this is something that is starting to you know, grab you in your soul, you should certainly check it out. But he, um, there's a, a lengthy quote I want us to read together because there's just so much good stuff in here. So he puts it this way. He says, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. An idol, now get this, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. If I just have that, if only, if I can have this thing, then I'll have meaning. Then I know I'll be significant, then I'll be secure. That's worship. When we take something good, we turn it into an ultimate thing, We're looking to that thing for our salvation instead of the living God. And we all do this. Friends, we all do this. This is this is the human heart is an idol factory. So do we know what we're worshiping? Sometimes these can be tricky and they hide from us. Right? It's easy to spot idolatry in somebody else. But it's hard to find it for ourselves. Perhaps one of the easier ways is to think, you know, what causes you to go off the rails? What provokes like this deep sense of unease in your soul? What makes you anxious? What, when it happens, uh, when it's threatened, makes you uncontrollably angry? Right? What, what causes you to just be plunged into deep despair? Because underneath all of those things is probably an idol in some form. So let's look at some examples, and maybe, you know, as we talk through some of these, you'll see yourself. You know, we live in an ambitious culture. We live in the Northeast of the United States, and that that is a driven place to be. And so maybe career is your idol. Maybe it's the career you th- think you want to have or maybe the career you have now. Are you worshiping success in your job? Right? It's super easy to happen. And my own, my own journey, this has been a, a constant struggle. Right? I started out as an engineer, and I thought that was going to do it for me. Didn't. So I kept looking. Then we moved to Morocco. And in Morocco, I felt this call to medicine. Hard to explain. But I felt like God was asking me to obey. And so we began like a 10-year journey for me to go back to school uh, to get a medical degree. And that process, man, it, has, it is a challenge to keep it from becoming an idol. When you have to spend 60, 70, 80, 90 hours a week on something, it's really challenging to keep that from becoming an idol. Now add on top of that that you're getting measured very objectively to say, I have worth by scoring X on this test or not. You're getting compared to your peers 
right? You're surrounded by people who are driven in a way that you can't even imagine, who have no qualms with making this your idol. And so this has been an ongoing struggle for me with various successes and lots of failures. But maybe career is not your idol at all. Maybe you look at those people and you say, that's dumb, right? That's not your idol. Maybe your idol's reputation. Maybe you find yourself agonizing after every little interaction, maybe in constant worry, how'd they perceive me? Did I come off okay? Right, every little conflict puts you into this tailspin. Did I use the right words? Are they gonna think less of me? And the, the painful reality of our idols is that they keep us from the very thing we long for, right? By, by being the type of person who worries how you come off, you're not that fun to be around, right? And it's, that, it's terrible that these idols keep us from the very thing that we deeply, deeply long for. Maybe your idol is beauty, and so you spend your time, your money, you're trying to achieve that right look. You want the right, the right you know, response from your social media friends, right? And, and unfortunately, all this effort at physical beauty makes you nice to look at, on the outside maybe, but inside you're shallow and ugly, and you have to face that reality, right? This, this happens over and over again. We seek our worth from our kids, And so we pressure them into something that they don't want to do. We push them to succeed. Maybe we smother them with affection or control. And then they they push us away. And the very thing that we longed for, that relationship, gets taken from us. That is just the dangerous reality of these idols, right? Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's acclaim. All all these things that, that promise us life, they fail us in the end. And honestly, this is when Jesus says something like, whoever would save his life will lose it. You know, sometimes you read that as a threat. Honestly, I think it's just an observation. You you run after these things, they're going to fail you. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Our idols just can't satisfy us, friends, because we're looking to them to do something that only God can do for us. Only God can give you a security that's unshakable. Only God can give us meaning and purpose that endures through hardship or loss. Only God can give us significance that that doesn't matter how we perform. So it's important for us to identify these idols, but it's not enough to just say, oh yeah, that's an idol. Because we'll just replace it with something else. right? You you pull down one and something else is going to pop up. You have to replace idolatry with worship of the true living God. So how do we do that? So I'm going to look back at our passage today in Exodus 15. In verse 11, Moses and the people sing, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. And here's the key. The remedy for our idolatry is an experience of both God's holiness and his steadfast love. His holiness and his steadfast love. His holiness does not allow us to keep splitting our allegiance, right? It doesn't allow us to keep worshiping other gods. His holiness is going to expose us. When we come up against it, it's going to reveal something in us, and that is going to be challenging. Right? Isaiah got exposed to God's holiness, and he says, woe to me, I'm ruined. Peter gets exposed to Jesus' holiness. He says, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. 
God's holiness is going to expose our sin because it's going to expose our idolatry. All sin really at its root is idolatry. There's a reason that in a few chapters, God's going to give Israel rules to live by. The very first one, you shall have no other gods before me. All the rest of the rules kind of illustrate that one about how we've replaced God with something lesser than him. And our idolatry is sin. So a great first step out of idolatry is going to be repentance. We don't talk a lot about it, but it's an important step for us to acknowledge our sin before a holy and perfect God. And that's what happens when we come up against his holiness. We see our sin. But friends, our sin is not the last word, right? There's a redemption to God's love. He's offered us redemption. Twice in the song, the people sing about being God's people whom he has redeemed, whom he has purchased. Israel was redeemed out of Egypt, out of slavery by God's own hand. And and friends, we are redeemed from sin by God's own son. Hallelujah. God became flesh to literally pay the price of our sin, to purchase us, to redeem us from slavery to sin. He knew that, that our idols bring death right? The wages of sin, what you earn from our sin as death. Our idols demand absolute allegiance from us, and they give us nothing in return. They wouldn't die for us, but we have a God that would die for you, willingly paying the penalty so that we could have relationship with the only God who can actually satisfy us. And it's that great act of love. It's that mercy, that grace, that outpouring of demonstration of power over sin that can move us into worship, that can move us into the appropriate response to God, just like Israel when they witnessed God's act firsthand. You know, it's kind of tempting to say, well, yeah, if I'd been there and I'd seen God do something so incredible, I'd worship too, of course. But friends, we stand on this side of the cross, and we can look back at the cross and say, what an incredible act of grace. We're an all-powerful God who can part the seas with the breath of his nostrils, would step into our mess. He would demonstrate a perfect life. He would experience betrayal and death. He'd experience rejection and allow himself to be cut off from God for us. I think it's easy for us to say, well, we just have a too big a view of our idols. And that's probably true. But I think we have too small a view of our God, right? We need constant reminding of the beauty of the gospel, the outrageous truth that an all-powerful God would give up all that power for you. An all-knowing God, a perfect God, perfect God the, the one who can wipe armies off the face of the planet would become powerless for you. The one who is full of truth and justice would suffer the worst kind of injustice for you. It just moves my soul. The one who is eternal, the one who has no beginning and will have no end, came into history to die a death of a mortal man for you, for me. That kind of redeeming love can transform us. That kind of redeeming love can capture our hearts and lead us into a response of worship like Israel had in this passage and like we have in Revelation 15. When we sing with those around the throne, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. 
Only when we look to the one true God, we see his overwhelming holiness and his outrageous, steadfast, redemptive love, will we be drawn into worship as he really deserves. And then we'll find that as we worship the living God and we seek our value and significance and meaning and purpose in him, that our idols lose their power over us. And Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for me will find it. And seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be given to you as well. We'll discover that God actually meets those deep, deep longings in our hearts. And then, you know, a really funny thing happens. All those good things that we made ultimate, we can use those to worship God. It's incredible. And I think, honestly, that's as good a place as any to stop. Because it's important for us to respond, to look at our hearts and say, what, what are we looking to for meaning? What are we looking to for significance? And to confess those things before God. And then to look at his holiness and his redeeming love and to say, God, I don't understand why you would do this for me. But I stand at the cross and I worship you for your greatness. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. And I would ask that you would allow God to do some business in your heart today. And maybe God's asking you to respond in some way. Maybe you need to confess. Maybe you need to pray with someone. Maybe you need to um, acknowledge something that has been going on for a while for you. So don't ignore that. Don't ignore that still small voice which says, I'm doing something and I want you to obey. If you feel the need to respond and you would like prayer for that, uh, you can come up here and uh, kneel at this altar. Someone will come, an elder, an intercessor will come and pray with you. If you want to just come and be with God in a, in a way you, need, you feel like you need to move, you need to respond in some real, tangible way, you can come to this side. No one will come next to you, but we'll be praying for you from afar. But would this time be one that is sparked afresh, that we would worship God in a new way because of what he has done. Would you pray with me? Our God, we don't understand why you would come, why you would leave your throne, why you would redeem a people like us. We confess our sin before you. We know that on our own we have nothing to stand on. But you have reached out and you have poured out your love for us. You have become the penalty for us that we might become your people. We worship you this morning. We make much of your name and we glorify you for your great love for us. We pray that you would work in us now even and that you would be glorified and praised in Jesus' name.